Well, friends, we've been uh, spending some time in the Minor Prophets this summer. We've made our way through Jonah and through Habakkuk, and now we are beginning a kind of quick ascent, descent, kind of regional plane flight equivalent of a sermon series, two parts through Obadiah this morning. Obadiah could be described perhaps as the most minor of the minor prophets, and just by way of just information, when you hear that phrase, minor prophets, it doesn't mean unimportant. All that is is just a distinction of length. The minor prophets are generally shorter books, whereas the major prophets are generally longer books. So if we're thinking with length as the standard, Obadiah is the most minor of the minor prophets, the shortest book in the Old Testament. If you were to ask many people in the church, what is Obadiah about? How many people could give a good answer? This is why it's a joy to be able to open the scriptures and preach the entirety of God's word, the entire counsel of God. We're going to look to this short book over two weeks, Lord willing, and we're going to see some things that we have seen before. We're going to see, like we saw in the book of Jonah and in the book of Habakkuk, that Obadiah's prophecy is historical. It is rooted in history. We tend so often to divorce redemptive history from world history, and we should not do that because God has worked in world history to redeem a people. We're going to see that yet again today. We're going to see more about the Lord in this short book, about his sovereignty over all things and his purposefulness in all things, about his love for his people, We will see his fatherly protection over his people. And we will see, as we prayed that we would, his plan to establish an eternal kingdom for his people through Christ. This has always been plan A. We'll see it today. So open your Bibles to Obadiah. If you have your Bibles with you, it would be a good thing for you to do. You're going to be helped by being able to follow along in the text as we look through it and read it together. If you didn't bring a Bible with you this morning, we will try to get the words to the sermon text on the screen behind me. If it takes you a moment to find Obadiah, that's fine because I have a number of general comments to make by way of just background for us to be aware of before we look to the text itself. Obviously, the book is named after the prophet who wrote it. But we know very little about the prophet other than his name. And Obadiah was apparently a pretty common name because there are a dozen people or so on the pages of the Old Testament that go by that same name. So there's nothing unique about the man. The title, the header of the book, describes it as a vision, the vision of Obadiah. That's just a term. Vision is a term used of messages communicated by God to his prophets. We saw that, for example, just in Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, where the Lord told Habakkuk, write the vision. And after a very short introduction, verse 1, the rest of Obadiah is a vision communicated in very poetic language. We'll see that as we look to it. You'll also notice that as we go through the book, you're going to hear of a nation, of a people called Edom, over and over and over and over again. Well, what can we say about Edom before we even read this morning, just so that we have some information in our minds? What can we say about Edom and its relationship to Israel in particular? Many in the room might know that Israel and Edom both descended from Abraham's son, son, Isaac. Excuse me. Isaac and his wife, Rebekah, had two twin sons. The older was Esau. The younger was Jacob. Despite the fact that Esau was older, 
The promises of God made to Abraham were eventually confirmed in and through the younger son named Jacob. Esau was also known as Edom. That nation descended from him. Jacob, as we know, had his name changed to Israel. And that nation, in turn, descended from him. Genesis 25 and verse 23 reads this way. The Lord's words to Rebekah. Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. The relationship between Jacob and Esau, the brothers on earth during their lives, was rocky. If you were a part of the Genesis sermon series a little while back now, you would have seen that firsthand as we made our way through that book. Jacob took advantage of Esau at a point when Esau came in from the fields exhausted. And Esau ended up selling his birthright to Jacob for a bowl of stew. Now Esau, of course, was culpable in this. He despised his birthright by selling it for a bowl of soup. Later, Jacob tricked his father Isaac into giving him the blessing of the firstborn. And upon finding this out, Esau did not take too kindly to it. He vowed that he would kill Jacob, his brother. All of this resulted in Jacob having to leave town, to live in exile for a number of years, two decades or so. And Jacob eventually would return to the land of Canaan and the brothers were reconciled. But moving forward, the relationship between the two nations of Israel and Edom was fraught with tension. For example, in Numbers chapter 20, we read about how Israel under Moses had come out of Egypt and was making its way toward the promised land. They sought to pass through the land of Edom. But Edom refused them passage. Listen to these words from Numbers chapter 20. Moses sent messengers from Kadesh to the king of Edom. Thus says your brother Israel, You know all the hardship that we have met, how our fathers went down to Egypt, and we lived in Egypt a long time. And the Egyptians dealt harshly with us and with our fathers. And when we cried to the Lord, he heard our voice and sent an angel and brought us out of Egypt. And here we are in Kadesh, a city on the edge of your territory. Please let us pass through your land. We will not pass through field or vineyard or drink water from a well. We will go along the king's highway. We will not turn aside to the right hand or to the left until we have passed through your territory. But Edom said to him, You shall not pass through, lest I come out with the sword against you. And the people of Israel said to him, We will go up by the highway, and if we drink of your water, I and my livestock, then I will pay for it. Let me only pass through on foot, nothing more. But he said, You shall not pass through. And Edom came out against them with a large army and with a strong force. Thus, Edom refused to give Israel passage through his territory, so Israel turned away from him. It's important for us to understand the relationship between these nations. Later on in redemptive history and world history, 1 Samuel 14 describes how Saul, once he has taken the kingship, fights against all of his enemies on every side. Well, who are those enemies? They're listed against Moab, against the Ammonites, against Edom. 
against the kings of Zobah and against the Philistines. Edom is counted amongst the enemies of Israel. 2 Samuel chapter 8 catalogs the victories of King David. King David is going to war against surrounding nations. Edom is one of those nations. 2 Samuel 8, 13 and 14 read this way. Talk about tension between peoples. And David made a name for himself when he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. Then he put garrisons in Edom. Throughout all Edom, he put garrisons, and all the Edomites became David's servants. A relationship racked with tension. In 2 Kings 14, we learn of a later king named Amaziah, who, for his part, struck down 10,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. The relationship was not great. All this by way of background for you, so that when you hear Edom, you know what we're talking about. Descended from Esau, another nation east-southeast of Judah that is not in a very good relationship with Jacob, his brother. Okay, let's look to the text. We're going to read today Obadiah 1 through 14. This is the word of God. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling who say in your heart, Who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed, would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Teman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. We thank God for his word today and every day. 
My plan this morning is to preach the message in three parts moving forward from this place. First, I want to survey some more. I want to consider the historical setting and the witness of even other prophets that will sound strikingly similar to Obadiah. Just give us some context and to help us see more that the Bible is one cohesive whole. So we're first going to think about historical setting and the witness of the prophets. Secondly, we're going to work our way through our passage this morning in the ways that it breaks down. We're going to observe it. We're going to seek to understand it. And then thirdly, we're going to make a significant observation and reflect further together on the content of the passage. So I hope that's plain. Part one, let's consider the historical setting and the witness of even other prophets. Again, I want us continually to see that the scriptures present one cohesive message. We ought not be surprised when we see how it beautifully and consistently hangs together. The historical setting here seems clearly to be the siege of Jerusalem on the part of the Babylonians in 586. Many in the room know that the nation of Babylon, the empire of Babylon, came against the southern kingdom of Judah, and their campaign against Judah culminated in the conquering of Jerusalem in 586. So this is the historical event in view. That will become increasingly clear even in verses 10 to 14. This prophecy seems to have been written between the fall of Jerusalem in 586 and what would be the Babylonian campaign against Edom in 553 B.C. The Lord's issue with Edom is this. They should have assisted Judah during the Babylonian invasion and siege and exportation. But instead... They sided with the foreign invaders and even took advantage of Judah's misfortune. This too becomes very clear in verses 10 to 14. The future destruction, plundering, and pillaging of Edom would take place, as I just said, ironically perhaps, at the hands of the Babylonians, the very empire with whom Edom had aligned itself against Judah. That empire would one day conquer them. The Babylonians in 553 B.C. would wage that campaign against Edom and conquer it. And then even after the Babylonians did that, in the period of the Persians following the Babylonian Empire, the land of Edom would be settled by various other peoples. And really, since the early centuries B.C., has not been a settled land since. All of this squares with the witness of the prophets. And again, what I want to do in reading some of these is to help you see how the scriptures hang together. Consider the prophecy of Jeremiah against Edom. This is from Jeremiah chapter 49. Concerning Edom, thus says the Lord of hosts, Is wisdom no more in Teman? Has counsel perished from the prudent? Has their wisdom vanished? Flee, turn back, dwell in the depths, O inhabitants of Dedan. For I will bring the calamity of Esau upon him, the time when I punish him. If great gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? If thieves came by night, would they not destroy only enough for themselves? But I have stripped Esau bare. I have uncovered his hiding places, and he is not able to conceal himself. 
His children are destroyed, and his brothers, and his neighbors, and he is no more. I have heard a message from the Lord, and an envoy has been sent among the nations. Gather yourselves together and come against her and rise up for battle. For behold, I will make you small among the nations, despised among mankind. The horror you inspire has deceived you, and the pride of your heart, you who live in the clefts of the rock, who hold the height of the hill. Though you make your nest as high as the eagles, I will bring you down from there, declares the Lord. Edom shall become a horror. Everyone who passes by it will be horrified and will hiss because of all of its disasters. As when Sodom and Gomorrah and their neighboring cities were overthrown, says the Lord, no man shall dwell there. No man shall sojourn in her. Behold, like a lion coming up from the jungle of the Jordan against the perennial pasture, I will suddenly make him run away from her, and I will appoint over her whomever I choose. For who is like me? Who will summon me? What shepherd can stand before me? Therefore, hear the plan that the Lord has made against Edom and the purposes that he has formed against the inhabitants of Teman. Even the little ones of the flock shall be dragged away. Surely their fold shall be appalled at their fate. At the sound of their fall, the earth shall tremble. The sound of their cry shall be heard at the Red Sea. Behold, one shall mount up and fly swiftly like an eagle and spread his wings against Basra, and the heart of the warriors of Edom shall be in that day like the heart of a woman in her birth pains. And then there's the prophecy of Ezekiel, shorter than the one made by Jeremiah, also against Edom. When you hear Mount Seir, understand that is a reference to Edom. The word of the Lord came to me, says Ezekiel. Son of man, set your face against Mount Seir and prophesy against it and say to it, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against you, Mount Seir, and I will stretch out my hand against you and I will make you a desolation and a waste. I will lay your cities waste and you shall become a desolation and you shall know that I am the Lord. Because you cherished perpetual enmity and gave over the people of Israel to the power of the sword at the time of their calamity, at the time of their final punishment. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord God, I will prepare you for blood, and blood shall pursue you. Because you did not hate bloodshed, therefore blood shall pursue you. I will make Mount Seir a waste and a desolation, and I will cut off from it all who come and go. Strong words about what the Lord will do to this nation of Edom. And lastly, very briefly, there is the language of the prophet Malachi. Malachi chapter 1. He is speaking of God's love for Jacob and also of his judgment and his hatred toward Esau. Malachi 1, verses 2 and following. I have loved you, says the Lord, to Judah, to Israel. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to the jackals of the desert. It's the word of the Lord. That's part one, just historical setting, language of the prophets, so that we understand the dire nature of what's going on. Now we're going to move into the text itself. The tougher sledding is over, but it's important that you have those things in your mind. Look to verse 1. Verse 1 is an introduction. We have the header. 
that begins the vision of Obadiah. We've already considered that. And then the rest of verse 1, the prophet then introduces the divine speech that will begin in verse 2. He indicates that the nations are being summoned. They're being recruited by the Lord to rise up against Edom in battle. In verses 2 to 4, we see that Edom, for its part, is proud. And the Lord is resolved to therefore humiliate them. Verse 2, the Lord is going to make Edom small and insignificant among the nations and cause them to be utterly despised. Now we see, verses 3 and 4, this is in stark contrast to Edom's estimation of itself. Edom is proud. They see themselves as untouchable. Now the Edomites did live, as I said earlier, in a region east-southeast of Judah, and a portion of that land was very mountainous with a number of cliffs. And you understand, in terms of warfare of this day, that kind of topography is very easily fortified. So all this language about a lofty dwelling and being untouchable is an allusion to that. The Edomites felt safe in their mountainous dwelling, a fortified place to live. They say in their heart, we see at the end of verse 3, who will bring me down to the ground? That's their posture. To which the Lord says in verse 4, I will. He will bring them down from their lofty place. And then in verses 5 to 9, we see that the destruction and the pillaging of Edom will be total. In verses 5 and 6, we see this language that's often referred to as the prophetic perfect, right? Where a prophet speaks about a future event as though it's already done. Such is the certainty with which the prophet speaks. How you have been destroyed. How Esau has been pillaged. His treasures sought out. But the message of verses 5 and 6 is this. Normally, thieves and grape gatherers, when they come in and do their thing, they actually leave a little bit behind. Grape gatherers leave gleanings. Thieves come in and they only steal what they need or what they can carry. Right? They can't take everything. But this won't be the case when Edom is conquered. They will be pillaged and plundered, and nothing will be left. Verse 7, again speaking about a future event as though it has already happened. Just as Edom betrayed its own brother Jacob, so Edom's allies will betray it. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread, those with whom you have made treaties and covenants, those with whom you've broken bread have set a trap for you, and you have no clue. You have no understanding. You think you're untouchable. You think you're shrewd, but it's all coming down. Verses 8 and 9. The day of the Lord's judgment is coming. And in that day, neither the wisdom of wise men nor the might of of mighty warriors will be able to provide Edom with any sense of national security. Won't happen. Just as Edom cut off Judah's fugitives, which we're going to see in verse 14, so Edom will be cut off by slaughter, says the Lord. And then in verses 10 to 14, we get the reason, in more detail, for God's particular judgment against Edom. The Lord will act this way 
Not only because Edom is proud, but because Edom was cruel to Judah. Verse 10. Because of what Edom has done to Jacob. When you hear Jacob, think Israel. In particular, think Judah in this context, the southern kingdom of Judah. Because of what Edom has done to Jacob, shame is coming to them. They will be cut off forever. Verse 11. Edom stood aloof when strangers, here, Babylonians, right, carried off Judah's wealth. The Babylonians, we know this. It's recorded for us in the pages of Scripture. Came and took all kinds of things from the holy city. When the Babylonians entered Jerusalem and cast lots for the city, to use the language of verse 11, they're conquering, they're pillaging, they're plundering, and they're just casting lots as to who gets what. Edom stood by aloof. And the text says, the Lord says, in acting that way, you were like one of the foreigners who came in to plunder and to pillage. You made yourself like Babylon, effectively, when you stood aloof when your brother needed you. Verses 12 to 14. The Lord then spells out the violence done by Edom. It's written poetically in the form of a warning. Eight prohibitions. Do not. But we should understand this again to be outlining what Edom has done to Judah. You can see it. Edom gloated over their brother Judah in the day of Judah's misfortune. So not only did you stand by when, they needed, when Judah needed help, you gloated over Judah in the day of Judah's misfortune. Edom rejoiced over Judah's ruin. Edom boasted in the day of Judah's distress. Edom entered the gate of Jerusalem to participate in the plundering when it was sieged. Edom gloated over Judah's disaster and over Jerusalem's destruction. Edom participated in the looting and in the pillaging of Jerusalem. Then, finally in verse 14, as if it wasn't bad enough already, Edom cut off the people of Judah, the people of Jerusalem who were trying to flee trying to flee for their lives. And Edom cut them off and then handed them over to the enemy. Handed over those who were running for their lives. Their brother Jacob. Hand them over to Babylon to be done with whatever Babylon saw fit. So all of that is why the Lord is angry. This is why the Lord has summoned the nations against Edom. This is why the Lord will act in judgment upon them. Which brings us to part three. I want to make a significant observation, and then I want us to reflect further on the text. You see in the early verses that Obadiah's vision is, quote-unquote, concerning Edom. The vision repeatedly addresses Edom. The Lord lays out his case against Edom. He makes clear the judgment that will come upon Edom as a result of what they've done. But this prophecy 
was given not to Edom, but to God's covenant people as Holy Scripture. Why is that a significant thing? Because the purpose of the prophecy was not so much to warn Edom of imminent judgment. The purpose was to reassure God's own people of his justice at work for them and of his protectiveness over them. That's why it was given. That matters for us. Just like all of the saints from every era of history, our faith can be weak, particularly when we encounter difficulty in this life. As we look around at how things are, as we look around even at how bad things seem to happen to the people of God, as we are bombarded by the message of a fallen world, we hope for things unseen. But sometimes the things that are seen dominate the eyes of our hearts. This has always been true. The reality of God's protectiveness over his people and the reality of his justice at work on behalf of his people is meant to strengthen our weakened faith. To remind us yet again that our Lord is faithful and our Lord is true and he will do what's right always. That vengeance belongs to him and he will repay. It was true then, it's true now. So that's the significant observation. Now I want to ask you a question. Does God have enemies? Does God have enemies? A number of you are nodding yes. All right, well, who are his enemies? How would we start to answer that question from Obadiah? Who are the Lord's enemies? First thing we can say, sort of number one, the proud. The proud are God's enemies. Edom, we're told in the early verses of Obadiah, is a proud nation. And there's a lot of language here about how their pride has deceived them. Now, is that not always the case with pride? It only deceives. To be prideful as a fallen human is to not see ourselves as we should. To not see ourselves as we are. To be prideful is to trust in ourselves in some way. To trust in our own strength, our own wisdom, our own ability, our own work. Friend, pride will ruin you. Book it. It will ruin you. That's true in this life. I mean, in temporal matters, that's true. What do we have? I'm talking about life on earth now. What do we have that we've not been given? Nothing. That holds, by the way, universally. Believer, non-believer, doesn't matter. We, in spite of our very lofty estimation of ourselves, we are not self-sustaining beings. 
We are dependent creatures. This is why we're taught to pray for our daily bread. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. From God's perspective, there is no such thing as a self-made man. It is foolish and it is sin to trust in yourself in this life. So how much more so when it comes to our standing before the judge of all the earth, eternally speaking? We talk regularly here about God's standard of righteousness about what it requires for a human being to stand before God at the end of history and for God to look and say, righteous. We talk about that. Any conversation about salvation, any conversation about justification has to start there. What does it require to stand before this God? Jesus told an audience one time that it would require a righteousness that far surpasses the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. He told that same audience that they must be perfect as their heavenly Father is perfect. There's the language of Deuteronomy that the Apostle Paul cites that cursed is everyone who does not obey every word written in this law and do them. There's James 2, 10 and 11, where we're told that to break any part of the law means that you've broken the whole thing. It's all or nothing. There's Galatians 5, where Paul makes it quite plain. You want to weave any work, any obedience, any any kind of law-keeping into the fabric of salvation, of justification, you better keep the entire law. Because you weave any work into Christ, you add anything to Christ, and he is of no avail to you. Think about how Jesus interacts with people during his earthly ministry. A lot of times people read the Gospels and they get tripped up over things because they, on the one hand, will hear Jesus speak with great compassion, great gentleness, and say a lot of things about, believe in me, trust me. But then over here they read him say things that sound harsh, that sound very jarring and confrontational, and he tells people, be perfect, keep the law. What's he doing? Why does he talk like that? He speaks to people who trust in themselves that they're righteous. He speaks to people who are looking to their own works in any degree. He speaks to them with those words of crushing, confrontational law. You cannot do this. He speaks, however, to those who know they need mercy, 
to those who know they need him with gentleness and compassion and says, believe in me and you will have eternal life. Come to me and I'll give you rest for your soul. This is the same Christ who says, blessed are the poor in spirit. What would that mean? We certainly would start by saying it is not to be haughty. Poor in spirit knowing I'm needy. I don't have anything. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They desire righteousness. I would add they also know they don't have it on their own. I need it. There's the Pharisee from Luke 18 who thanks God that he's not like other men. I thank you, God, that I'm not like other men. I'm not an extortioner. I'm not unjust. I'm not even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. I thank you that I'm like that. To put your trust in even what you understand to be God-wrought righteousness is foolish and it is sin. Do not trust in your own righteousness. I don't care if it's the work of the Holy Spirit. That sounds terrible to say. Don't trust it. Be encouraged by it. Be thankful. Encourage each other at the fruit that you see. But do not ever trust it. Trust Christ alone. Like that tax collector in Luke 18, our posture is to despair of our own righteousness. To despair of our own righteousness that we might look to Christ whose righteousness is all of the righteousness we will ever need. Whose righteousness is given to miserable offenders by faith. And own these two things, beloved. Own them. Let these things inform your posture. Let them comfort your soul. Let them affect your interactions. Our righteousness, this side of the resurrection, is an alien righteousness. Meaning, it is not ours inherently. It is Christ's. Own that. This is why we confess that he is our whole and only righteousness. We're going to sing here in a little while. He is my joy, my righteousness, and freedom. Own this as well. Our righteousness is an alien righteousness. It is Christ's, not ours. Secondly, this side of the resurrection, beloved, that will never stop being true. You will never, this side of the resurrection, be so sanctified that you can trust in any way, to any degree, in your own righteousness. Cannot be done. So let's reason together for just a minute. In thinking about how God is opposed to the proud, I was struck this week in thinking about how we do not talk about the sin of pride and self-righteousness, frankly, as we should. What I'm saying is we far undershoot the severity of this issue. Pride and self-righteousness, as many have said, I, I trust Jerry Bridges may be the most famous for saying this, falls into the category of respectable sins, you know? I mean, we say things 
kind of like this. You know, he's a good man. I mean, he's proud, but he's a good man. We say that. She's a good woman. I mean, she's, she's really she's self-righteous. She's a good woman. We say that. But we don't ever say that about adultery or thievery or murder. We don't talk like that. To trust in ourselves, and certainly to trust in ourselves that we are righteous in any way, is the gravest error we could ever make. We should treat it with that kind of severity and that kind of seriousness in the ways that we encourage and exhort one another. God, to use the language of Proverbs 6, God hates haughtiness, hates And it is an abomination to him, he says. He opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. That's Proverbs 3 and James 4. So who are God's enemies? One, the proud. Two, God's enemies are those who hurt his people. God's enemies are those who hurt his people. Edom, in our passage, had done violence to Judah, the people of God. That doesn't sit well with the Lord. He is protective of his people. The Lord has always jealously defended his people. Listen to these words from the Song of Moses. This is Deuteronomy 32. You could read this later today. Just listen. Vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip, for the day of their calamity is at hand and their doom comes swiftly. For the Lord will vindicate his people and will have compassion on his servants when he sees that their power is gone and there is none remaining, bond or free. See now that I, even I am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive, I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. For I lift up my hand to heaven and swear, as I live forever, if I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and will repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood, and my sword shall devour flesh with the blood of the slain and the captives from the long-haired heads of the enemy. Rejoice with him, O heavens. Bow down to him, all gods. For he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him, and he cleanses his people's land. This is the Lord. On to today. He acts this way. He is saving his people. He's building his church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it because he will see to that. And he is still protective of his people. And so he still does not take kindly to the hurting of his dear ones. Consider the words of Christ. Temptations are sh- to sin are sure to come. But woe to the one through whom they come. 
It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. The Lord has always closely identified with his people. We confessed earlier about being adopted by the Father. We now call him that. What does it mean to be adopted? It means that we now have a name that we didn't have before. We have an inheritance that we didn't have before. And with that comes all the privileges of being a family member. And we talked about what a number of those were, including God's protection as a father over us. The Lord has always closely identified with his people. And this is especially true in the Lord Jesus Christ. Especially true. You know this. God the Son uniquely took on flesh. God made man in his own image knowing that God the Son would become man. God the Son became one of us. You want to talk about identification, closeness. He became one of us, like us in every respect, yet without sin. He took, then, you want to talk about identification and closeness and love? He took our sin on himself in order to make satisfaction for it. You want to talk love? You want to talk Closeness, identification. He gave us his very own righteousness that he had earned. He gave it to us to be our righteousness. He represented us. And we, his people, were told in the scriptures, we, his people, are those who have been united to him. We are in union with him. You remember... Adam's reaction to Eve in the garden when God made Eve. You remember that? Where he says, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. You can sense the joy and the significance of that relationship and that union, right? We're told by Paul in Ephesians 5 that the point of that union, the union of a husband and a wife, is to depict the union of Christ and his people. That's why marriage is even a thing in the first place. All of that, that union with Christ and the significance of it, helps us make sense of a passage in the book of Acts that I trust you've read a number of times. In Acts chapter 9, we read about Saul and how he was converted, how he was brought to faith and repentance. Have you ever noticed how Jesus speaks to him? We read these words. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, you remember he was murdering Christians, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, if he found any Christians in Damascus, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. We're familiar with that. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, 
whom you are persecuting. In other words, from Jesus' perspective, to persecute his people, to hurt his dear ones, was to persecute and hurt him. So closely does he identify with his church. So significant is his union with his people. May this encourage our hearts today. The Lord Jesus, beloved, is jealous for us. He protects us. He has always fought for us. Just like David and Goliath, we thought about that last week, right? How David stood. He fought on behalf of God's people. He went out to go to battle with the great champion of the enemy on behalf of God's army. On behalf of God's people. And he was victorious in battle and cut off the enemy's head. Just like that, Jesus has always gone out to fight for us. Conquering all of our enemies. Conquering sin and death and hell and the evil one. We read from Exodus earlier, but listen to these words again. And think of Christ. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Saints, fear not. Stand firm. And see the salvation of the Lord, which he has worked for you. For the sin that you see today, you shall never see again. Jesus has fought for you, and you have only to be silent. Saints, fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he has worked for you. For the death that you see today, you will never see again. Jesus has fought for you, and you have only to be silent. Saints, fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he has worked for you. For the enemy that you see today, you will never see again. Jesus has fought for you, and you have only to be silent and trust May it be so. Let's pray.